The Forum at 8 on AM Live, turning the spotlight on the big issues and the people behind them. You can write into us on 34701 at uh, AM Live on SAFM and, of course, write to me at Darshan Mudley. This SMS came through just a short while ago. It said, in South Africa, one wakes up every day to depressing economic news. Maybe the time has arrived to move away from global economic models of investor-pleasing. But who created those economic models? My next guest believes America created a new informal empire, not one that needs troops or tanks to maintain order, but one that uses powerful agencies like the National Treasury to maintain an economic order on the rest of us in the world. It's a system that was largely created along the lines laid out by the U.S. in the aftermath of World War II. How did they do that? Well, it's an argument that's being put forward by Leo Panitch, who co-authored The Making of Global Capitalism. Together with Sam Gindon, these two political economists from York University are explaining how the modern world economy since World War II was built and evolved over the decades. Panitch is on a speaking tour in South Africa to help explain where the world economy has come from and where it might be going for us here in South Africa. My guest, Professor Leo Panich, is the Canada Research Chair in Comparative Political Economy and a Distinguished Research Professor of Political Science at York University in Toronto. Professor Panich, thank you so much for joining us. Good thank morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. And we've spoken with him many times before, and it's a great pleasure to also talk to you. Professor Patrick Bond is a political economist at Witt School of Governance, trying to help make sense of this for us here in South Africa. Professor Bond, thanks to, for talking to us. Wonderful to be with you again. Thanks, Dashan. And, and we're going to find out a little bit more about the book and perhaps lay the scene for us about how we get to where we are today. On the forum at 8 this morning, we're asking you, how will global and local shifts in the economy affect South Africa? Write to us right now on 34701, that SMS hotline costs you one rand per SMS, on Twitter at AM Live on SAFM, or write to me at Darshan Mudley. So, Professor Panish, perhaps we can start with you. I mean, you laid the scene for how the level of economic integration here around the world has reached unprecedented levels, and it was by design, right, by by the U.S. economy, is that right? Yes, the American state uh, has for the last over century, half a century, uh, taken responsibility for managing uh, a global capitalism that it was central to making. Uh, when the American government makes economic policy, it doesn't only make it with an eye to keeping the American capitalist economy going, it makes it with an eye to keeping the global capitalist economy going. And essential to that is ensuring that the states around the world, above all, in this case, the South African state, is taking responsibility as well for managing not just the South African economy, but making its contribution for managing the global capitalist economy. So when you look at all of the shenanigans here around the finance minister, etc., when Gordon says, we need to pull up our socks, you need to see that in terms of the main thing that is putting pressure on South Africa, which is the flow of capital moving to the United States when the American Federal Reserve raises its interest rates. The whole world is sensitive to what this central bank in the United States does. It's effectively the world central bank. And then when it does something, the attention all focuses on whether your central bank or your finance ministry will do things that fit with that. And if they don't quite fit with that, then all the attention gets focused on how do we pull up our socks to make sure that it fits with that. 
Professor Bond, before we, you know, put a value judgment on it and say whether this was a good or bad idea from the Americans, I mean, ultimately, what, what impact are we seeing of this creation or design of an economic system in the U.S. on us here in South Africa? Well, can I go back 30 years to answer that? Because I think maybe your older listeners will remember that that was the eight, 1985, 31 years, the critical point where that power of the U.S. and especially the int- interest rate increases that Leo just mentioned, uh, it actually had happened in 1979, 80. I happened to be working in the Federal Reserve in 83 to 85. And that's when, uh, do you remember P.W. Borta? You heard about his Rubicon speech in Durban City Hall, and he shook his finger and said, you know, do not push us too far. And then the banks all ran away. Uh, and the pressure that anti-apartheid movement had on those banks was formidable. But the context, what, what Leo is getting at is that there was a shift in power within the U.S. state to the financial uh, uh, sort of agencies, the Fed and the Treasury, but particularly the bankers got much stronger in the 80s. So they could really wreck Africa. This was Africa's lost decade of a debt crisis. And my boss at the time, a guy called Paul Volcker, I think you, you, you sort of notch up all the damage and destruction he did to Africa in the 80s, and it's probably about as bad as Cecil Rhodes or King Leopold. And I think it's at that level we are stuck in this global financial market that P.W. Borta encountered in 1985, and he had to default on the debt, put on exchange controls. And we talk about the 1990s when President Mandela had to make concessions to world finance, and it again is about the International Monetary Fund, December 1, 1993, Pravin Gordon, the Transitional Executive Committee Secretary, signing that IMF deal that really set us down what um, people will call a course of neoliberalism that increased inequality, poverty, uh, deindustrialized the country. So we are talking about a, a kind of 30-year process, I think, um, not just in the 90s with Mandela, but dating back before, where that extraordinary strength of, of U.S. power uh, is felt, and, and its power over the U.S. Econ- uh, the world economy restructuring uh, means neoliberalism becomes that sort of philosophy of the day. So that's the 70s and 80s for us here in South Africa, but but this started in the U.S. when it was fighting imperialism, Professor Yes, Bennett? I mean, the, the United States is to some extent an anti-imperial great power in the sense that it, of course, emerged out of having been a colony and having had a revolution against the British Empire. Uh, and as it grew and expanded as a great power, it didn't like the Japanese and European empires create colonies. Uh, it uh, championed decolonization, but it championed decolonization uh, on the condition that uh, countries became open to the free flow of capital and to free trade. And I must say, along with the discipline that Patrick was speaking of, uh, of the central bankers and the financiers, is the carrot. And the carrot has always been uh, that the United States will open up to every country in the world uh, the possibility of capital flowing in. Uh, and being the basis of growing wealth within capitalism. And unlike the other empires, it always insisted that it wasn't looking for a unique economic sphere of influence. The Americans are perfectly happy to have the Guptas investing here. They don't need the Trumps investing here. In fact, they see it as their responsibility not to be exclusively representing American capital. They're representing South African capital, Indian capital, German capital, etc. And all of those capitalists ultimately look to the United States as their ultimate protector, as their safe haven. That's why even when American interest rates are practically zero, If you're looking for a safe place to put your capital, you'll rush back to the United States. And it's that rushing back to the United States that is the real pressure 
on South Africa now because capital can leave this country without capital controls and that, that outflow puts enormous pressure on the institutions of the state for it to be disciplining along the neoliberal lines that Patrick was speaking of. How did we let this happen, Professor Patrick? Well, it's very attractive. It's very attractive. In fact, it's astonishing, of course, that an ANC, SACP, Kasatu government uh, should be in this situation now. But it was very attractive because in the mid-1990s, when they came to power in this marvelous democratic revolution, they either faced a rupture of breaking away from global capitalism, being on their own with, insofar as there weren't other places doing this, or being offered the carrot of, well, we'll get you foreign direct investment. But it's hot money. Uh, it's hot money. It flows in and it flows out in relation to decisions made in New York and in Washington. Those decisions are often about managing the global economy, not just the American. But uh, it's hot money it can leave. And if you don't have capital and import controls, if you don't have a strategy of inward economic development, if you're dependent on the Guptas as well as the multinational corporation for your growth, then you effectively don't have democratic control over your economy. Patrick Bond, I mean, we've seen this happen in South Africa. We've seen the influence of elite families. How did you let this happen? Because, you know, you were an activist during your, your time, a civil society activist as well. Weren't you watching this influence? And, and while we were talking about regional integration, the World Bank was advocating for that on Africa. Why weren't we making a loud enough noise about it? Well, in fact, it's a great question. I've been talking about it with uh, Saint-Peter Blanche, whose books on the topic are very enlightening, um, Lost in Transformation, for example, or Ronnie Casserles, whose um, his, uh, statement was that we made this Faustian pact in 1993, a, a deal with the devil, right? And you sell your soul, but you're hoping you get, as Leo said, some um, blandishments at the, the outset. Um, the critical moment, 1995, uh, when we got rid of the exchange controls that P.W. Bort had put on in 1985, the financial rand really allowed money to flow. And then in 1999, the biggest companies in the JSE, or Mutual, uh, Sanlam, oh, sorry, not Sanlam, that was the one that stayed, Anglo, De Beers, SAB, Miller, Investec, Didata. Before that, it was Gencore, BHP Billiton, um, it was Liberty, um, it was um, um, Richemont. Uh, the, these these huge companies ran away, and they, in a sense, took their historic apartheid loot out of the country, never to bring it back. Um, this is something Gwede Mantash has complained about. The ANC Secretary General uh, specifically pointed out that Old Mutual really made a mistake. But that was the, the sort of disciplining where capital flows out, including our own apartheid-era capital, the wealth of, of uh, um, historic crime against inequality was allowed to go. It's tragic, and, and I think uh, many in the ANC are, are saying, why do we let this happen? It's interesting because Gwede Mantash has just said he thinks there's um, regime change plotting in the U.S. Embassy, but I think what Leo is very clearly saying, this is such a great book, as it clearly says, they don't need regime change. They are actually setting a world capitalist regime in which you fit, and then it's Standard & Poor's, Fitch & Moody, the credit rating agencies. It's Goldman Sachs who can run on the RAND, you know, they had a, a, a number two choice for Goldman Sachs investors to destroy the RAND this year. It was revealed just after we went down to 1799 to the dollar. These are the kinds of things that mean I don't think uh, the U.S. Embassy really cares so much because they've set up the broader structure. Leo, am I, I right That's about right. That? And to, to be fair, I was here exactly 20 years ago. It was in 1995 giving a two-week course to NUMSA 
on why they should be very careful about the blandishments of progressive competitiveness. The Australians are here. One needs to realize this isn't just Volcker and the right-wing Americans and so on. This is Social Democrats, and it was the Social Democratic governments and intellectual advisors of the Australians at that time who were saying, we need a social contract with the unions whereby we have open capital flows and free trade, but we will retrain workers so that they can compete with Vietnamese women who earn a dollar a day. And if we retrain them and they're subject to competitiveness, if they're subject to that discipline, we can succeed in this world of competitiveness. And Patrick at that time was one of the leading figures in saying, no, we need a strategy, which they in fact had down on paper. The old RDP. The old RDP, uh, which provided an alternative to this. Uh, so it isn't just, you know, it, it's that the left, the center left at least, and one must say uh, the communist left in most of the world, uh, that decided to opt for this. It, the option is difficult. I mean, I think it has to be said that when you stare this in the face, you, you fear being, making a rupture with the global system. Uh, where will your support come? The Greeks faced that this summer, right? Uh, so if, if you don't prepare people, if you don't show people that this is a dead end, this competitiveness route, that free trade and free capital movements leave you without any economic control, and you haven't prepared people, you haven't prepared alternate means of production and distribution, people's capacity to do those, then you're left trapped within what appears to be an open, free system. Well, let's see what our listeners have to say about that. We're going to open up the lines for them, and we're going to not... You know, not to give you a chance. We're going to give you a chance, of course, to to comment on what you've heard so far. So the number to dial in is 0891-104-208. AM Live on SAFM. 25 minutes after 8, and we just had an ad from a banking company. And I know I've, I've heard Leo Panich talking about this before, and he would like to see banks like these, these large ones, be nationalized or at least become public entities. Leo, would you like to do that before we go to the calls? Well, yes, I don't think we can have uh, any democracy unless banks become public utilities. We need to look upon them as public utilities, and we need to insert them into a system of democratic economic planning. Is this where you open yourself up to socialists and Marxist rants? Well, I don't know. I don't think that uh, when one speaks of a public utility that, you know, uh, one is saying that one wants some sort of Stalinist system. On the contrary, I think it's the essence of a democracy. I'm not sure that, you know, even uh, this is something that you need to be a socialist or a Marxist to see. Well, let's see what our callers have to say. If you'd like to give us a call, 0891-104-208. We have Yaj on the line in Cape Town. Yaj, good morning. Hi. Morning, Dawson, and morning to your guests. Um, I, I agree totally with your guests about the whole issue of you know, the need for public banking, etc. This whole system of globalization is based on debt finance and the exorbitant privilege that the Federal Reserve has of printing the global reserve currency, the U.S. dollar forcing countries to buy oil in, in, in dollars, etc. And the system depends on uh, fractional reserve banking, where banks enjoy, the again, the exorbitant privilege of creating 97% of our money supply out of thin air when they issue loans. And this is what people have to understand, and that the solutions to this is public banking, and to control the, you know, the speculative capital flows, you need a transaction tax, like China is looking at a Tobin tax now to protect 
their currency from speculative attacks. And we need to have a universal basic citizen's income. And this money can be created uh, by the Reserve Bank, by a public bank, to fund. It doesn't have to come out of taxation. And this is what Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party in the UK is talking about, of a quantitative easing for the people. Thanks for joining us. Yaj in Cape Town. Prof Bond, perhaps we, we, we can put this question to you. I mean, it, when Yaj talks about, you know, the debt slaves, you know, it sounds like we, we talk about national, on a national level, we see countries having to become debt slaves. But on the individual level, we talk about the working poor in South Africa on a daily basis. There's similarities here. That's right. And this is the connection to the world economy we have to be aware of, because I think probably in the next uh, few days, we'll see another interest rate increase after the 0.5% a couple of weeks ago, and another 0.5% last year. So if if you're uh, carrying your consumer debt, unsecured loans or a mortgage bond, a car loan, student loans are awful at the moment, um, you're going to be hit hard. And so it's, it's really in everyone's interest to lobby for lower interest rates. But you know, if, you, if you get lower interest rates, then like Barclays, we heard that they're going to run away because they don't make as, as many profits or the international investors run away. So that's when you need the exchange controls to, to be put back on. The same exchange controls we've had on and off over, over the history that many other countries are putting on. I think Leo can probably even expand that more about the limits of debt as a strategy. Yash is exactly right, you know, b- both on the monies uh, being printed by banks, uh, in effect, when they lend, but it's really also the Fed having done quantitative easing. Maybe, Leo, you can say, do they have any space to do that anymore if there's another big crisis this year? Well, I think space is the question. I think it's very important that we don't think this is an omnipotent, uh, all-powerful, perfectly regulated American empire. It's full of contradictions. Uh, And managing this system is a tremendous headache, and things blow up in their faces all the time. Uh, They are concerned with what's happening in South Africa. The crisis here affects them. It affects uh, them in a very deep and profound way. So they try to control the American economy when they actually bring unemployment down there. They get worried about wage pressure will lift prices there. They then raise interest rates there. The effect of that, because interest rates get get raised, the capital sends its money back to the United States. But that causes a crisis in China, in South Africa, and Brazil. But the whole system depends on China and South Africa and Brazil being integrated into the system. So when they're in crisis, this is then a problem for them as well. Now, there's a deeper thing here. Part of what making the system go involves disciplining workers so that they aren't asking for too much, uh, so they aren't taking too much in wages. But when there's a crisis in the United States and American workers can't afford to buy everything that Walmart is selling based on what it produces around the world, uh, or gets at least suppliers to produce around the world, they then hope that Chinese workers, South African workers will pick up the slack. And with free trade, they will eat more. They will buy more. Well, they're already so indebted. Their wages aren't high enough that they they aren't able to pick up the slack the peop- the workers in the south who haven't been the great global consumers 
The assumption would be that they might become the great global consumers, as American workers couldn't consume for the whole world. I guess the question I'm, I'm left with now is, is, do we need more or less state intervention if we have seen these as unprecedented levels? Bonga Mtembers tweeted us, and Prof, he wants us to do a free plug for your book. He says, what's the name of the book that we mentioned on the forum? It's part of the discussion. Please name it for us. It's called The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire. Leo Panich and Sam Ginden are the authors. And today we're in conversation with Leo Panich. And he's going to be talking this afternoon with Sam Ginden, the co-author of the book, and WITS economist Chris Malikani at the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa headquarters. That's in Newtown here in Johannesburg. It starts at 2.30 this afternoon. And the topic is, how do we South Africans best respond to the world economic volatility? Our listeners have offered you some suggestions, uh, Prof Panich. So let's see what you think of these. Anonymous says, well, if the U.S. can print excess money, why can't we? It says getting invested here anyways. It's crazy for us not to do so. For our own investment here in the same way, why can't we print more money? Mageba gives us an answer. He says, South Africa has no chance but to simply surrender to the Western capitalists. There's no leadership and there's no vision for an alternative to capitalism. I'm going to add to that. Do we need more or less state intervention for us to deal with some of the challenges that await? Well, I don't think the issue is more or less state. I think it's a different kind of state. Uh, Capitalism never exists without the state, and this free market depends on very active states. That's why your newspapers every day are all about what Gordon does or what he doesn't do. In order to have this freedom for capital, you need states to have the kinds of laws, the kinds of courts, the kinds of discipline over workers that makes that work. So none of this era of neoliberalism has been about less state, in fact. If anything, it's been about more state activity. We keep talking about the role of the Federal Reserve. Uh, We need different type of state actions than we've had. Uh, We need to stop hoping that capital will give us the goodies in that trickle-down kind of way and have the kinds of states that create or try to create the conditions for doing this. We're getting some listeners calling in, but Prof, uh, perhaps you can unpack that term for us, neoliberalism. We we hear it a lot. The EFF talk about it, particularly in our political sphere. What does it mean, really? Well, it's in in the word pro-corporate, and the, the policies that are adopted are the ones that make uh, big companies stronger in relation to workers and also that make financiers stronger because capital flows more freely. And it's in that sense that if you were to do some of the, uh, let's say, qualitative easing, okay, quantitative is what the Fed does, but let's make it qualitative to make it not gifts to the bankers as the U.S., Europe, Japan have done, but uh, to people. Yash said, oh, what about a basic income grant? If you printed money and gave it to people to spend on local production and and consumption, that would have a more circulatory effect. You know, this is what John Maynard Keynes was advocating, a a sort of policy to circulate funds so that you get effective demand from below that stimulates the economy when the private sector is so sick, it's just not investing. But again, to do that, as Leo has also said, exchange controls. You've got to keep the money in the country. Otherwise, it just floods out as soon as the interest rates go lower or as soon as uh, the the rand starts to devalue because you're printing it a bit more. But I think it is definitely the policy to follow. It's interesting that both the EFF, as you mentioned, and the metal workers, the biggest union in Africa, promote those policies.
Hmm. Uh, Prof Panich, before we go to the callers, we've got Simone in Durban and Wahid in Cape Town who are holding on. I mean, when we have these conversations about the economy, you talk about capitalism, and it, very often it, there seems to be this disjuncture between the very lived realities of South Africans or the people in that economy and these big terms that we have to unpack. I mean, how, how does what the U.S. economy is doing, the South African economy in responding, relate to those South Africans that are still defecating in a bucket this morning that still rely on something we call a bucket toilet system which robs people of their indignity every day. We talk about inequality rising around the world. Where does this fit in the conversation as we talk about capitalism and its spread? Uh, well, I think it does have to do with uh, the marginalization uh, that uh, a global capitalism produces, even as it integrates people into the system. So those people defecating into a bucket no longer find a viable means of feeding themselves and their families outside of capitalist social relations, outside of being selling into a market or selling their ability to work in that market, etc. Uh, we are now living in a world that is completely capitalist. Even those people who are selling knickknacks, or worse, as we drive on these clogged highways, they are part of this system. They are petty traders because they can't be anything else in a capitalist world. There's nothing else to go back to, to escape to. And the most impoverished people are those uh, who can't get access uh, to work or can't get access to welfare, can't get access to a basic annual income. But it's not just a matter of giving them that income so they can buy the commodities that would make their lives better. You know, we really need to talk about collective services, collective goods and services that meet people's needs that aren't commodities that are freely available. There should be transport. There should be health. There should be housing. Yes, this should be sewage, of course. And we need to have the type of, and we, I think we have the creativity to do this. We need to have the type of economy that doesn't charge for those very basic things. And we shouldn't have people dying in protest as they protest for water. Prof Bond, quickly, before we go to the callers. It's true, absolutely, because one of the ways in which this world pressure, because we have Moody's in the country this week, it's to cut the budget deficit. And we have a deficit that was going to be over 3%, uh, 38 this year, and and Gordon has had to cut it to 3.2. And that, where were the cuts coming from? From the grants. They're going to go down mm. after inflation. The same for water and sanitation services, the free basic services, which are quite tokenistic. You know, 50 uh, liters of water a day or, sorry, 50 ki- uh, kilowatt hours of, of uh, electricity per family per month, 25 liters of water per day. Very, very little, uh, really. And so to get enough water to flush a toilet so you don't do uh, a bucket system will require more state spending on infrastructure. Unfortunately, the pressure is on Pravin Gordon to spend on the big white elephant infrastructure projects near where I live in Durban, the, the South Durban, the big dig-out port or the big big rail line going to Richards Bay. That's really where the big money is going, unfortunately. That's a matter of social pressure that needs to continue to rise, I think, uh, as the students showed last October, to get a 0% increase in uh, fees this year. And that's the pressure that in this country is, is quite formidable. Well, let's go to the lines then. Simone and Durban, thanks for holding on. Good morning. Hi, Dashin. Um, basically, I want to make a, well, a, a point and then ask a question mm-hmm. in relate, relation to that. Um, I, I wonder why people tend not to look at the history of, of economics and the fact that, you know, the big Western economies 
grew through mercantilism during the Enlightenment, where, you know, they were extremely protectionist during those those times. I mean, the whole Boston Tea Party was actually an economic protest. Um, and, you know, they basically, through colonialism, imported raw materials and things from the, from the developing world or from the undeveloped world at that point into their economies and grew into the powerhouses they are today. Now, today, they flipped it and said, no, now the, the developing economies need to open their um, economies, and that's how you're going to grow. But basically, they're just continuing the same process that they did in the past, where now they export those raw materials through capital inflow. And I, I just wonder why those sorts of things aren't talked about more. In, in the, we, we tend to kind of look just in this narrow window of the 20th century, when really this problem goes back a lot further. And I'd, I'd just, just like to ask the panel why why that is and, and why we, we tend not to look at the history of the matter. Simone, before you go away, I mean, what, what benefit would there be to even talking about it? So what if we know that the Supreme Court of Appeal rules that it was wrong for us to let al-Bashir go? So what if we have that judgment from them? It's already done. What does it matter if we well, talk about the history? Because, you know, there's that, that, that famous saying that, you know, those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. And we repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Um, you know, if you look at the, the history of our economy during the last hundred years, you know, we sat in the exact same spot in the world. Well, not exact same, but more than 90% the same spot we are now in the world in the 1920s, you know, just before the Great Depression. We made the same mistakes with rising inequality, and, you know, we're just repeating these same mistakes. And I think until people develop more of an appreciation for the history that led us to where we are now, we'll just keep making the same mistakes. Simone, thank you very much for calling in. We're writing down these questions. We're going to take a couple of callers before we ask our guests to respond. Uh, Professor Panich is taking down notes the whole time. So, Wahid, in Cape Town, go ahead. What's your question? Uh, good morning. Just a quick comment and a question. Thanks mm-hmm. for uh, for an important program. I think that this debate and this discussion doesn't happen often enough, not at all. And maybe you know the two profs could could comment on what gets taught in mainstream economics and you know finance at our universities. Uh, Professor Bond spoke spoke about it. It must fall, and it's so important because people don't know of alternative of alternative systems, etc. We all sort of stuck on this freeway or this, you know, this one-track mind, and we, it's so difficult to change the mindset. We have to redistribute ourselves out of poverty. We're not going to grow out of poverty. We're living, unsus- we're living unsustainably. Um, you know, a Western and the developed world, the size of the carbon footprint means that we can't take every, we can't give every South African, you know, a beautiful middle-class house and a wonderful middle-class education and two cars. We can't. The planet can't sustain that. So we have to think of these alternatives. But here's the question. Um, we never spoke, I think, about violence and the, the role of American foreign policy, the military foreign policy, in propping up neoliberalism. I mean, Chomsky speaks a lot about it. You know, he's made claims that America is the largest, most violent empire in the history of humanity. So mm-hmm. maybe a comment or two on that. Well, here in Cape Town, thanks for your call. Rob in Midrand, go ahead. Hi, Rob. A serious problem with the manner in which these uh, credit ratings are, are behaving. 
I think they are targeting South Africa. I'll give you two examples. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been downgrading us and indications are that we will get another downgrade. But for me, they are not looking, when, when they downgrade us, they are not looking at the stability of the country. And they are not using, okay, Tourist numbers have been growing in, in South Africa every year. Tourists do not visit a country which is unstable. Which, which is unstable. And another thing is that our constitution is very vibrant. Yesterday, the Supreme Court in Bloemfontein found the government of South Africa on the wrong with regard to the Al-Bashir issue. So you can see that South Africa is a strong democracy, but when they consider, when they make their considerations, they are not looking at those, at those things. So I think for me, these persistent downgrades that we are seeing is an attempt by these credit rating agencies to create a cheaper trading environment for foreign companies that are doing business in this country. Uh, So, I mean, I think we we need a a little bit of more explanation from them. I know they are coming to the country. It will be lovely to to get them in the studio ask them what basis are they using to, to, to downgrade this country? That's a great question, Rob. Thanks for calling in. Sebastian is in Cape Town. Morning. Morning. I think the rating agencies are not looking properly at the long-term fundamentals of this country, which are positive besides um, our negative and incorrect short-term policies. And uh, foreign investors are using the rating uh, ratings and the exchange rates just to beat us down to buy us up cheaply Uh, i'd like to put emphasis on the move away from fixed exchange rates in the 1970s to float exchange rates which have put extreme power in the hands of the large institutions and their foreign exchange desks, foreign exchange trade, traders. We, we've absolutely um, given up our so- sovereignty in relation to uh, the, the way our foreign exchange rates are actually determined. And while have, these rates should have a positive correlation with labor rates, in, i.e. to ensure that our labor is adequately remunerated uh, in uh, in relation to uh, hourly wage rates in the developed economies because uh, prices are set in dollars and, re- and wage rates in the developed inco- economies, minimum wages are set in relation to that. What the exchange rates actually have done is beaten our, wa- our real wage rates in foreign um, exchange mm. terms, foreign purchasing terms, down to, to absolute poverty levels. Um, until we get this right, that our wage rates expressed in dollars um, or pounds actually are equivalent to what a person in the U.S. or the U.K. actually needs as a minimum to survive. Uh, We will have an ongoing situation of inequality and extreme poverty in this country. Sebastian, thanks for your call. Sebastian in Cape Town, sorry to cut you off, but we do have one more call and then we have to get uh, get some answers and still wrap up the show. Uh, Mputumi in Johannesburg, I hope you understand our challenge this morning. So as brief as possible, please. Thank you. I'll try to be. Thank you. Um, I just want to say I agree with the, your first caller in this round who speaks to the value of history. Um, I'm going through a book by George Freeman, Friedman called The Next 100 Years, and it speaks to um, the American empire itself and how after World War II, the United States enjoyed complete naval dominance pretty much all over the planet, and they controlled the flow of goods all around the planet. And uh, what that speaks to is sovereignty and the ability of individual countries to, to sort of grow their own economy. And in that same book, there's no mention of Africa or let alone South Africa. There's no mention of South Africa even as a thoroughfare 
um, for because that's how Cape Town and and I guess the economy developed, or even as a source of those same raw materials. So if you don't play along with the United States, speaking to what you guys said in your initial insert about mm-hmm. the, the empire itself, if you don't play along with the United States and sort of buy into their the culture of economics that they're exporting, you literally don't stand a chance in any effect because they are they enjoy a dominance that cannot be challenged, not militarily, not economically. Um, so in that stance, I'd like to ask your 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 panel there. Um, what what do they make of that and the possibility of South Africa being able to influence its own um, pressure or dominance in its own affairs? Mpatumi, thanks for your call in Johannesburg. Prof Panich, let's start with you. Simone was saying the value of history, we're not recognizing it. And a couple of callers, I think Wahid and Mpatumi, mm. they're also reiterating that. Why don't we talk about this more? I, I thought that Simone's comments were marvelous. Uh, that said, uh, one can't go back to history. Uh, we now live in a world of multinational corporations, a world in which those national capitalist classes that found it in their interest to grow through tariffs, etc., uh, have grown outside of that. Well, that's ironic and, coming and from someone who wrote a book about the history of how this developed, right? Well, I mean, I'm trying to show that, yeah. you know, that this is where, this is how capitalism has been made. It is not a system that uh, is simply a formula that is implemented and is the same in the 18th century and the 19th century and the 20th. It evolves historically. It evolves out of uh, choices that people make historically. But you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And I think what everybody is pointing to here, uh, in all of these really excellent comments, uh, and I think everything they've called for is needed. The problem is, can you have exchange controls? Can you have a guaranteed annual income? Can you have the type of tax system on finance that's been advocated within the framework of a capitalist system? And the reason that people shrink back from these things is they see that it does relate to the integrated global system we now have. So it sounds but like what is happening choice. then is, can we do anything about right. this? Well, the point is that we do see not only in Greece and not only in Spain and not only with Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party of all places, we see even in the United States now a candidate that is speaking in terms of democratic socialism. It's astonishing to sit there, I must tell you, and see even Fox News speak of the democratic socialist Bernie Sanders without a sneer on its lips. People are waking up to what we need is a systemic change. And all the things that your callers have talked about need to fit into a broader systemic, yes, I would say, socialist vision for a world beyond capitalism. That's been very unfashionable in recent years. But unless we connect all of these little pieces, we will each one of those will not be able to sustain themselves unless we get back to a notion of democratic economic planning. You have democratized the political system with all kinds of problems and contradictions in the society. You have not democratized the economy. That's the challenge globally.
Prof Bond, I mean, how do we do that? We, we heard Rob and Sebastian do, both talk about the ratings agencies and the power they have over us. We, we, formed, we, we went into the BRICS bank thinking that this would, would shift the power balance away from those Western nations towards China and our economic partners. Can't we have an alternative ratings agency and just ignore what Moody's and the rest have to say? Well, that's been proposed, and the BRICS uh, New Development Bank will be uh, apparently launching next month. So we have a Johannesburg branch manager. I'm sure your listeners know his name, <laughs> Any. But um, the hope there, I fear, is misplaced. And you can just see what the BRICS did to Africa and indeed to South Africa in the IMF reforms. The International Monetary Fund has a new voting structure decided in December. Um, while the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, go up, in China's case, 35%. South Africa goes down 21%. Countries like Nigeria down 41 So we don't necessarily have a working ally against the system. We actually have a little bit, much, well, I'd say much, much more, and that's a new book that Leo has a chapter in called BRICS, an anti-capitalist um, critique that Jakana has published uh, last year. And we, ha- we see, therefore, excessive power of finance drawing in China. They've now become their currencies part of the IMF um, basket that's respected. So then what would we do as an alternative? I think the Treatment Action Campaign showed us. And, and you know, definitely Simone's right to look at the 20s. But, you know, in the 30s, deglobalization, not globalization, followed that period. That meant manufacturing broadened out. It meant um, much less reliance on foreign investors because there were so few in the Great Depression. The, the World War in 1939 also made South Africa more self-reliant. You know, uh, Dash, and that was our period of strongest growth, 8% per year. Black wages relative to white wages doubled. It, um, and that's the fastest increase that they had even uh, up to 1994. So there were some things that were happening to deglobalize and to have less reliance at that point. Today, the best example must be the Treatment Action Campaign winning local medicines production, not big pharma corps with their patents. That was in 15 years ago in the World Trade Organization, an exemption. And that meant now we've got 3.5 million people getting free medicines. And that means our life expectancy has gone from 52 to 62. That's, I think, instead of what Rob describing as a credit ratings agency um, conspiracy. I think we need to then think more broadly. It's not just credit rating agencies and finances, as Leo said, global capitalism. But there is a way out, deglobalization of capital and producing things locally and making them, uh, as we have with medicines that used to cost $10,000 a year, now they're free and the life expectancy increases in spite of Tabo and Becky's recent ravings. <laughs> uh, I think proof of that. So I'd say if, if you look at the worst uh, aspects of our relations to the world economy, it's mining. The prices have gone down dramatically. That's why the RAND has crashed from 6 RAND 30 2011 to 15 and a half today. And also our illicit financial flows, $330 billion a year uh, on average the last 10 years. And a good government really could stop that, you know, that vulnerability to mining, that vulnerability to world finance. I think that's what radical economic transformation the ANC brags about could mean in practice. But, you know, <laughs> we have a government that talks left but walks right. Professor Patrick Bond, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Prof Panich, I'll give you the last word on this, and, and perhaps you can pick up on what, what Patrick well, I think was Patrick's right about what happened in the interwar period uh, and to a lesser extent after 1945. But let's remember that that Great Depression threw up primarily fascism as a political alternative. And what we see today, given the enormous contradictions of this system, is the resurgence of a far nationalist right which will break capitalist globalization, will not break capitalism, will break capitalist globalization in a very undemocratic way. Uh, The alternatives increasingly are democratic socialism or that. 
people need to take a very deep breath and say we are at a turning point in history and need to find a democratic way out of this or we're going to have an authoritarian way out of this, which will be tragic. Professor Leo Panich, thank you so much for joining us. He's Canada Research Chair in Comparative Political Economy. Thank you to both my guests and to you for joining us this morning. I'll be back with you standing in for Sakina Kimwendo, 6 to 9 a.m. on AM Live. I'll hand you over to Rowena, who's standing by to bring you morning talk, and Kumbazila's got your 9 a.m. news bulletin. Take care.